Hi everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to this latest series of the Lago Mind podcast. Our first guest this series is broadcaster Steve Crossman. He spoke to us about epilepsy and mental health. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi Steve, how are you? Hey, I'm, um, yeah, I'm alright I think, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. Recovering from your busy summer so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it was kind of surreal watching the Olympics happen because I didn't, I didn't work too much on the Olympics and I was kind of like, you know, half just enjoying the quality of everything. It was amazing and half like jealous that I wasn't working on it. But after, after the Euros, I certainly needed a break. I just, you know, <laughs> not very, not very good at, uh, at kind of being okay with being off work, I suppose. Yeah, um, especially when I, the, the commentary on the radio was just so brilliant as well. Like the, even in sports that you just don't like, I got into taekwondo and the boxing yeah. commentary, and then yeah, it's just brilliant. Um, so yeah, to start with, we always ask what your kind of personal relationship with mental health looks like complicated um yeah so um i mean so my kind of my first issues with my mental health kind of occurred when i was at university and uh i was getting into a relationship with a girl that i'd been sort of chasing for quite a long time and things didn't go well and uh, for whatever reason my brain decided that that was my fault and that I was in some way kind of uh, broken. And I went into this sort of depression spiral and, you know, this was about 2006, it would have been. So, you know, before people were talking about mental health before, you know, there was, there was information out there for me to access that would have told me that, you know, I'm not broken and that, you know, what I'm feeling is a totally normal thing to feel. But unfortunately, none of that stuff existed. So, um, I didn't talk to anybody. Um, I just kind of held it in and sort of felt like I was kind of two people, you know, um, the kind of face that I put on around my friends and then the, the person that I was at the rest of the time. So I guess because it happened to me when I was quite young, um, that, that was quite difficult because <clears throat> I just didn't have the, the emotional range to cope with it. Um, and ever since then, I've had kind of bouts of it. So, you know, after that, in, when I was sort of 18, 19, through to I was like 21, 22, I had a lot of problems. And then I was fine for like three or four years. And then, you know, something else happened and it dragged me back down. And then I was fine for three or more years. And then um, another thing happened and it dragged me back down. So it's kind of been, um, it's been a, it's been a complicated journey, but I think I know mental health so much better now than I did. And even though I still struggle with it, even at my worst struggles, because I understand so much about my mental health, I don't go into a, I don't go into the same kind of spiral and uh, I don't find myself in a mental health crisis anymore because I have enough information about it to just about keep myself on an even keel. So touch wood, I think my relationship with mental health has seen its um, its biggest troughs. And whilst I'll never be able to kind of just be totally, you know, totally free of it, because I don't think anybody can be, um, at least I kind of can come back and remind myself every so often that I know enough about it to kind of still be able to function. Yeah, I think 
what you said about spirals is 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 so spot on because I think when you're not like you described when you're not um, when you don't have the knowledge base when you don't have the kind of previous experience of it that spiral can kind of go incredibly quickly down to a very low level but when once you start to kind of even you know once the landscape kind of changes which it has at the moment and once you develop the tools that that kind of help you you can kind of cut off that spiral at, at a higher level i suppose before it kind of like you said spirals all the way down mm. and it's um it's kind of like that there are so many different aspects to that you know there are for example for me you know the way it was kind of explained to me when i was i was studying to be a a mental health first aider at work is that you know you kind of think of it as like you know any kind of receptacle like a kettle for example and you know you can deal with a couple of things pouring sort of water into that sort of stress kettle but if you have three four five things hit you at the same time then there's no more room and it all overflows and that's when you really struggle with your mental health so it's kind of you know just understanding that is a coping mechanism in of itself um, but over the years, I've I've learned so many more. Um, but all they are is coping mechanisms. You know, they're not cures. It just means that when you're in the depths of it, you, you have kind of a um, you have sort of a lifeline to cling to, which isn't something that I had when I was sort of first first experiencing you know problems with my mental health. Yeah, I think that's really well well described. So you've kind of talked about the the early stuff that you you had at university but if you wouldn't mind talking about um something that happened to you while you were covering the olympics in rio five years ago that that kind of um i suppose quite severely impacted on your own mental health yeah absolutely so um i'd i'd just come off the back of doing the european championships in france in 2016 which were amazing and i then had a couple of weeks holiday and went off to rio to do the the olympic games and um I'd been there in Rio for maybe four days, something like that. And um, it was actually, it was the first day proper of Olympic competition. So it was that first Saturday of the Olympics. And I went to the beach volleyball um, and I had done all of the things that I shouldn't do when it comes to preventing myself from having a seizure. And so at this point, I should probably tell people I'm epileptic. Um and I'd just done all the things I'd, I'd drunk a bit the night before or drunk too much the night before. And I'm not a big drinker, but I didn't kind of realize just how much alcohol I was consuming, drinking a caipirinha in, in Rio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I drunk too much um, because you can't drink the tap water. And because I was, I'd had a bit to drink. I forgot to buy a couple of like two liter bottles of water. So I was really dehydrated the following morning. Um, I hadn't had enough sleep. So these are all triggers for my epilepsy. Although in my defense, I didn't know that at the time. Um, so I'd, I'd had a couple of seizures before, but this was a really dramatic seizure. So it happened as I was sitting in the stands on the Copacabana watching the beach volleyball. And for the first time in my life having a seizure, um, I was conscious as it was happening. So I had this very physical feeling of my head. Like it was like somebody was forcibly pushing down on my temples, like really hard. And it occurred to me, I was like, oh God, I think I'm going to have a seizure. This must be what it feels like to have a seizure. Cause all my previous experiences, you know, I just wake up and then there are, you know, paramedics there or whatever. And, um, 
and sure enough, that's what was happening. So my head kind of tilted itself to one side and I couldn't stop it happening. And then my eyes blurred and I can remember sort of seeing and hearing somebody shout and then I lost consciousness and then I came round um, probably like seven or eight minutes later. And I think because of the fact that I was conscious of what was happening, my brain then had something to cling to in a negative sense. So I would have these recurring feelings and be convinced that I was about to have a seizure and suffering from just days of, you know, probably five or six 90 minute long panic attacks every single day, or I would wake up with them in the night. And it was this, you know, I, I felt like I was, you know, it was at the time this seemed totally uh, logical. I just felt like I was going to die. I felt like, you know, I was terrified. I was like, you know, I'm going to have a seizure here and I'm not going to come around. You know, these were all the things that were, that were crossing my mind. And so the decision was taken to send me home, but unfortunately that, that actually didn't make things better because I was all set to get on the, well, set to go to the airport. And then my boss came in and told me that actually I had to wait another four days because there was, there was some sort of thing where if you've got a serious medical condition, unless you're being sent back with a doctor, you have to wait a week or something like that in total. So they sent me to a different hotel, which was just a much nicer place to be. You know, it was, it was kind of just in a much more chilled out place, part of town. And it was a proper hotel with like, you could just walk downstairs and have food. Whereas we were staying in like digs basically in Rio. So I didn't have to leave the hotel to eat and this kind of thing, which made a massive difference. But I came back and um, I, I was diagnosed with PTSD because I was just constantly feeling like I was back there. Not, not, I wasn't sort of hallucinating in a PTSD sense, but then my knowledge of PTSD was minimal. I just assumed it was something that just happened to, to you know, former soldiers. Um, and what I then realized is it's about triggers. So it was, I was having this kind of psychological and physiological feeling of I'm going to have a seizure and it was my head just felt like it was pushing in on itself. So I'd have that same sensation I had before this seizure in Rio and I'd be convinced it was about to happen. So, yeah, I went through I went through months of just kind of trying to put my life back together. So, you know, initially I couldn't leave the house. Then I couldn't walk down the street without feeling it. You know, it was building up to little things like can I can I by the end of next week manage to walk into town and back? And then the next thing might be like, can I sit somewhere and have a coffee for 20 minutes and then come back? Can I sit somewhere and have lunch for uh, 40 minutes and come back? And, you know, that w- those were all the little things that I had to do just to basically kind of rebuild my life. So did you do that through, was that like a, a prescribed... Um a prescribed kind of exposure mm. therapy method or, or was that something that you did did by yourself? So that part of it was something I did by myself, but it, it was essentially the very early stages of CBT, um, which I'm sure most people who are listening to this because they'll be passionate about it will know what it is. But for those that don't, it's cognitive behavioural therapy and it's the, it's the idea that um, you sort of put to one side what has put you in this position. It's not sort of like, you know, sitting back on a couch like you see in some sort of American TV show. It's not like, tell me about your childhood. It's let's deal with what you are struggling with now. Um, and what I've just described is the very early stages of CBT. It's basically like, you know, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? What are the little things we can put in place to get you there? And it's kind of, 
And in the midst of that, it's a lot of talking therapy and a lot of discussing about how you feel in the moment. So, you know, it's dealing with the problem rather than trying to work out what caused the problem is the easiest way to to explain it. Um, well, yeah, I would say it's much more kind of, I've had a lot of CBT, it's much more practical than... Yeah. Uh, other kind of talking therapies, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's, you know, there's different intensities of CBT that you can do. Um, so that, and that was kind of, it was helpful because, you know, I set my thing of like, I want to be able to go, because this was the other thing, you know, uh, some of my triggers because of where I was came into play. So, you know, being in a sports stadium with a crowd was the worst place for this to happen to me because then just going into a sports stadium with a crowd felt absolutely terrifying and something that I just wouldn't be able to do. It's literally my job to do that. So that that was a very unfortunate coincidence that that's where it had happened. Um, but I remember on my first sort of day of talking therapy, you know, the therapist asked me, where do you want to get to? And I said to her, like, you know, this is my job. I want to be able to do my job. I'm passionate about my job. So, you know, my big thing for the next six months um, is can I get to a football match and be comfortable being and working at a football match. So, you know, there were loads of little steps put in place. Like, for example, one of the steps put in place was like, can I go and watch a football match at a really small stadium with a really small crowd? So me and my friend went to watch Salford City play, and this is when they were a non-league club. And um, we, um, yeah, I managed I managed to do like 60 minutes. And then I was like, I can't, I, I'm really struggling. Now I need to go. But that was cool. Like doing 60 minutes was a good thing. Um, and... And that's kind of how I started to build it all up. But I also then um, went on medication as well. I, I would say for me, the medication was better than the talking therapy only because it had a more immediate impact on me. Like after I'd gone through the couple of weeks of um, difficulties, which I think most people have when starting medication, Um I did find that to be a lot better and I'm still on that medication now, like five years later, because just because it works. Um, was that specific for epilepsy or was it? Um... Oh no, sorry. So um, I was already on medication. Uh, oh, in fact, no, I did start epilepsy medication then because, you know, at that point it was a case of, you know, anyone can have like a seizure. It doesn't mean you've got epilepsy, but if you have two seizures, you're definitely epileptic. So yes, it was epilepsy medication, but actually the medication I'm talking about was um, citalopram, which is an antidepressant antidepressant um but what so they put me on a very small dose of it um because basically what said this is an antidepressant but we give it to people for anxiety um in in very small doses that's how it works so so that's what i went on and um and that did make a big difference to me but the, the good thing about the talking therapy was even though it didn't feel like it was helping me deal with the physical symptoms as much as i would have liked um what it did do was teach me so much about my mental health. And one of the first things that I was told is, so I remember sitting in the talking therapy and I explained my symptoms and I explained what happened. And anybody who's really dealt with mental illness knows that it can make you feel like you're broken. And, and that's, you know, how I was feeling in that moment. And what the therapist said to me was incredibly helpful. You know, the first thing she said was, she was like, but you have been through something incredibly traumatic and, she actually said to me, I would be more worried about you going forward if you weren't feeling like this, because it would say something quite disturbing about your personality if you'd <sighs> suffered something like this and were just totally OK. Just and off. I was like, huh, that is a good way to look at it. Yeah. So it's just those little things. So talking therapy has helped me um, when it comes to digging myself out of 
any kind of mental health thing that hits me it stops me going into that crisis mode that i did when i was younger yeah. but in terms of like dealing with the physical everyday symptoms for me medication was helpful but every but i can't stress this enough everybody is different and you know whenever and whenever anybody talks to me about mental health they always want to know you know how did you do it what do you know what did you use and this kind of thing as if like as if it's like an Amazon product review, do you know what I mean? But it's not, yeah. you know, everybody is different and everybody's sort of own path to it. You know, you've got to try and be open to, to everything as opposed to thinking, well, this worked for my mate, so it's, it'll work yeah, for me. I think that's pretty similar to me. I I kind of started with the uh, seeing a psychologist and, uh, and doing CBT and stuff like that. And I'd been offered antidepressants a few times, but I kind of felt I was offered them in quite a quite a it sounds a bit harsh but quite a glib way that was just like mm. go away take these it'll be fine and then wait for the talking therapies um but then yeah. once i'd had a few it was probably about a year of seeing my psychologist i did decide to go on on antidepressant and what what they helped me do and i think it may be similar to what you it kind of helped me to 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 flatline my emotions i didn't get the the kind of real nadirs, but I did get, but then that you trade that off with, it's quite hard to feel the, the really high highs. Um, but they kind of, the antidepressants kind of helped me do other stuff that helped me recover. So it kind of helped me get back into exercise, yes. helped me fully engage in the, uh, in the therapy and stuff, which seems to be similar to what, to what you're saying. No, definitely. I mean, yeah, every, and everybody has their different coping mechanisms and exercise is a massive one for me. And if I'm ever in a position where um, it's harder for me to exercise, it has a dramatically bad effect on my mental health. Um, so, yeah, like when I was in this situation where like I'm quite a big walker, um, I always have been throughout my life, but be particularly because of epilepsy, every time I have a seizure, I have to have a year off driving. Okay. So, you know, I've, I've ended up with calves like Jeffrey, which are <laughs> always walking places. Um and um and yeah that so walking alone can be exercise and you know i've got a dog so you know uh, when i'm done talking to you the first thing i'll do is take him out for an hour walk and that is super helpful for mental health um but but that was taken away from me because of what i was struggling with and that is something you know it uh, medication allowed me access to an important coping mechanism which i think is kind of what you're saying yeah absolutely so you kind of looking at or listening to you and looking at your your career now you seem to be you know really really smashing Thank it you. living living a living a lot of 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 kids dreams and so did you did you think that was going to be possible after rio no um i i thought uh that that might well be that for my broadcasting career um because how, how can you possibly think about broadcasting to, you know, millions of people if you can't leave the house? And it was that feeling of, you know, I felt my, my big feeling was, you know, my big worry was, is this me now? Is this just me for the rest of my life? Is the, are the is this what I'm going to be dealing with now forever? Um, and to an extent it is because, you know, I will always be coping with it in one way or another. But I, I just felt like my, my worry was, am I just going to be at square one forever now? Is, is, that, is, is this the square root of me, this, this life that now I'm living? So, yeah, you know, I'd, I, I was terrified that that was the case. I never, I, I wouldn't say I ever kind of 
thought, okay, that's definitely it. I was always clinging on to something. And I think, I think the the therapy that I was having helped enough. The CBT helped enough in the sense that I was always, I felt like I was achieving stuff. I was achieving these little targets, which made me feel like the big target of getting back to work might be achievable too. Um, but there was definitely a period though when I was just like, not sure how how I can get back there. But you know, that's you know, mental illness is a lot about catastrophizing, and um, that's one of my um, my first kind of running with mental health. I was diagnosed with um, GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder, and you know, I'm a big catastrophizer, and I'm just I am a catastrophizer if that's a word. Normally. Um, in general so uh, having this thing put in front of me which was a genuine threat to me in that sense you know led to that catastrophizing and um you know like i was really lucky like i could talk about medicine and um cbt all day but like you know my first brushes with mental health i was just a single bloke and i was a young bloke and i was away at university and i didn't feel like i could talk to anybody it took me a long time to talk to my parents about it um but, you know, I'm married, I'm in a super supportive relationship and my wife, like, just, I mean, at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife, um, like, I, I can't actually believe how much she put up with in that in that period because, you know, it must be terrifying to see somebody you know, you know so well completely lose themselves. And that is the hardest thing about mental health, I, uh, mental illness, I think, is that, you feel like you're no longer you. You see this previous version of yourself as who you were, but now you're not that person. You're this person who lives this life. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, to come to terms with. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And something that I've read that you've said that you didn't necessarily, or that you said you felt angry that you didn't understand mental health issues before, it yeah. kind of affected you and I was wondering something I noticed about you in particular but also a lot of the the radio and TV presenters that I look at is that there's much more of an interest in 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 digging into the the person and their backstory and you see it with with the England footballers now so do you think do you think that what you've been through has made you a more compassionate and more um yeah, I suppose mm. a more compassionate broadcaster when you're doing the the interviews with these people and seeing them more as as people rather than athletes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I've always had that in mind, you know, you know, as like a trained journalist. I'm I'm always I've always been fascinated with the idea of of the interview and how you set up an interview to get the best out of your interviewee and I'm you know, I'm really interested in everything that goes along, you know, from the first thing you say to them you know everything that happens before the interview all those kind of things i like i see it as a real craft and it's something i'm really passionate about but but yeah i mean look men mental health is now thank goodness a much more talked about subject i mean we're talking a few weeks after the olympics and with everything you know the bravery of Na of um, naomi osaka prior to the olympics the bravery of simone biles during the olympics bravery of Ben Stokes just after the Olympics, you know, and these are just the latest conversations that are happening about mental health. And I think my experience makes it easier for me to do those interviews because I empathize with what they're saying. I mean, look, five minutes before I spoke to you, 
I was just wrapping up an interview that I did with um, a woman called Ruby Tui. Who, yeah, um, the sevens. Yeah, yeah, from the rugby set, New Zealand rugby sevens player who who is is sensational. And you know, her her journey. You know, she lived in a women's refuge with her mum when she was a kid because they had to to flee an abusive relationship that her mum was in. You know, she's dealt with so many different things, and she's incredibly passionate about mental health and incredibly passionate about, you know using her the platform she now has to speak to you know the little kid that might be in a women's refuge right now so the the amount of conversations i have with people which end up around mental health is 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 massive and that is because of my of my experience so i think it gives me an, an empathy which can be more difficult to have if you've not experienced it um so yeah i mean it's to be honest in that sense it's it's probably made me better at my job because I have that kind of lived in experience. And I think if you talk to somebody, if you're someone who's struggled with mental illness and you speak to somebody who's talking about mental illness, so many things just ring true. I mean, one of the, one of the things she said to me, which I thought was, um, was amazing is she was like, yeah, she was like, you know, I don't, I tend to not refer to it as mental health. I refer to it as mental fitness because you've got to work it. And I was like, God, yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> and I've never, ever thought about that. So it's like, you always find people who say things you have to work at it. And that's why I was angry before I was angry because I hadn't worked at it. I was angry because I didn't know enough about it. I was angry because I hadn't spent any time looking into it. And I feel like if I had done that, I would have been much better prepared to deal with, a mental health crisis when I was in one, you know, prevention is better than cure. Um, and, you know, I, I remember reading an Everton footballer talking about this once from a, from a fitness perspective, he, he, he talked about prehab, prehab, prehabilitation. So learning something, a skill or, or, or training your body in a way so that it will deal better with, with a serious injury. Um, and I was like, yeah, I wish I'd prehabbed, better i wish i'd known the subject and therefore you know i would have dealt with it 10 times better when it when it hit me yeah i think that's a really good point um and you kind of brought it up a little bit there but how much admiration do you have for people like Naomi Osaka, simone biles you know ben stokes recently and 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 people who kind of use their kind of I don't want to say vulnerability, but they're what they've been through to doubt them, and and I think I think Ben Stokes is from I mean cricket is my main kind of thing, and and that's the thing that I understand the most. But his kind of reputation is as probably the most mentally resilient, um, loves performs best under pressure. So how important do you think it is? that someone who is seen like that, who's seen as kind of really, really mentally resilient, that they can be open about their their kind of yeah. frailty. And they can take the decision, the unbelievably amazing decision to say, actually, look, I am really struggling. And if you want the best out of me for five, 10 years time, I need this time off now. Mm. I think there's two sides to that. There's, there's who they are and, and what they say. And the who they are is you know, it's somebody like Ben Stokes will be a hero to so many people. So because he has that hero status, him talking about it 
will will speak to these people you know if 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 somebody just a random person tells you about their mental health you know there, there are sadly lots of people who are skeptical about mental illness and you know that's it's it's very painful that there are still people who 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 don't understand it I think if it's if it's your hero talking to you and saying, "Look, this is what I've dealt with. This is a real thing," it, it, it helps in two ways. One, because you're much more likely to to under, well, not to understand it. You're much more likely to believe it coming from somebody who might be a hero of yours. But also, if if one of the and I think you use the word vulnerability. I think that is the right word to use. It shows that if 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 me, Superman, sportsman Ben Stokes can be vulnerable, then so can you. Um, so that's the who they are and the what they say is, you know, the thing that struck me most about Simone Biles is that by saying what she said, she was making it OK to say no. Like there is this this culture of like, you know, fight through it, bust through it, you know, all this kind of thing. Like um, and that's something I took to heart in what she did, because, you know, I, I know that I shouldn't say yes to everything I'm offered because, because I have to protect my own mental health and my own physical health. You know, if I, you know, I, I work incredibly hard, but you know, if I did everything I was asked to do previously, then I would, I would push myself into a health position where I'd be more likely to have a seizure. And if I have a seizure, then, you know, who knows what my, that might do to my mental health as well. But, you know, if you can say no to competing in an Olympic contest, when you're one of the most famous athletes on the planet, then I can say no to that shift that I've been offered, which I might say yes, just because I want to, I want to say yes. And I want to, I want to do the show. And I also want to, want to show willing, but it's okay for me to say no to that. And, you know, that's something that I try to do anyway, but I think that was one of the most important things about what she said is that, you know, is that it's okay to say no. I think that's the simplest way to put it. You know, there, we shouldn't be putting this pressure on people of, um, fight through it, scrap through it, get through it, etc. Et like it's not weakness to say I'm not in the place to do it. Actually, it's strength because it conveys the fact that looking after your own mental health is more important than a gold medal. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's not the most important point in all of this, but I think watching that first team event where where she did, you know, say no to. Like that actually was of a benefit for her teammates as well because she wasn't fully there. She knew that she couldn't execute the things that she wanted to and actually the point of putting herself in danger just for the sake of of saying you did it rather than um, rather than letting someone else have a go was, was also an important, but not obviously not the most important point. Um, so can... You've kind of touched on it already, but can you see a real sea change in how we how we look after athletes? Kind of looking more at the the person rather than than the performance. And how do you think um, how do you think sports sport in general can balance that real drive for winning versus um, looking out for the the person who's who's underneath that? Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do that. I just hope they do. I mean, the the best that I think we can hope for is that if you consider it like on a slider between protecting mental health and winning, um, it feels to me that in in a lot of elite sport, 
it's always been all about winning and nothing else. And I don't think it's realistic to expect elite sport to go to the other end of the spectrum and only think about people's mental health. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. But I'd like to see the slider move. I'd like to see it move more in the direction of, of protecting people's mental health because, you know, that's the, the whole conversation around Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Ben Stokes should, should put that more into the public domain. And I think it will. Um, and, you know, we, we have all these conversations with people about their mental health, but also another another topic is how people that, you know, how their coaches, how the the governing bodies of their sports, what are they doing to to help them in that scenario? So I don't really have an answer because because I don't work in that environment. But I'd, what I would want to see is a shift in the balance, a quite a significant shift in the balance, because I think it is. You know, if we were to consider it one to a hundred, I think it's all—it's almost always been. It's all about—it's all about winning at the very top level. Um, and and look, I should say as well, there'll be loads of elite sports and elite clubs within sports who are great when it comes to mental health, and maybe we just don't hear about it. But I think in the wider context, um, that that winning being more important than anything else is something that we need to kind of push to one side yeah and I think actually when you do start to look after a person and their and their kind of health more generally there's a potential that they actually may even perform better so if they're doing you know the stuff you said about about prehab for for their mental fitness actually they may become a better athlete because of it and that's a kind of hopefully can be a kind of positive uh, side effect of, of of looking after these things a little bit more um, and the kind of last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about was you mentioned it earlier the the mental first aid mental health first aid course mm. that you did it's something that I I did last year as well and so yeah what why why was it important for you to do it and have you been have you been able to apply it to well I suppose it's a bit difficult because you haven't well, I don't know, but lots of people haven't really been in that much contact with their or close contact with their colleagues. But have you been able to apply it to the work that you do? Yeah, because um, it's it's probably like two and a half years ago now that I did the course. So um, pre-COVID, uh, I'd already been doing it for quite a while. Um, I think <clears throat> the main reason I decided to do it is because protecting people's mental health is not something that existed within the department that I worked in. Um, because people didn't, and that's not a criticism. People didn't know enough about it. I didn't know enough about it. Um, it wasn't something that was talked about. And I looked around, you know, the ground floor of the BBC sport HQ. And I was like, it takes a certain kind of person to get to the level that we're operating on here. And that type of person is very, very driven and you have to be like a massive perfectionist and you have to work incredibly hard and you have to put up with being paid not particularly great money to do a really stressful job. And I was like, you know, there'll be loads of people like me, be you know, because of the environment we're in, there'll be people with similar stories to me. Um, and, you know, people who are by nature perfectionists are always going to be more open to suffering from mental illness because it's impossible to attain the standards that you that you try to set for yourself. That's, that's just how it is. So I kind of thought, yeah, there'll be loads of people around here. So 
um, the you know I sort of did my mental health qualification within the BBC, but on on top of that, you know, I went round and spoke to kind of groups of staff, and I I kind of lobbied senior management to to take it more seriously and to you know the the big commitment I got from one of the sort of bigger bosses uh, at the time was they committed to making sure every single um, BBC Sport manager was mental health trained within twelve months. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think that they achieved that. <laughs> um, so that was massive deal to me because I was like, yeah, this is great because, you know, my experience in Rio was, you know, my, my boss uh, out there in Rio <sighs> did a mixed job. Like he did a great job with me when it came to looking after me when I was out there. But when we got back, he didn't understand that I was going through something profound and incredibly difficult and his his feeling about it was kind of one of those like, um, oh, you know, once you get back on the horse, you'll be all right. And I knew I wasn't. But again, that's not a criticism of him because he didn't have the experience that I had. And he didn't have, you know, again, even then, you know, mental health wasn't talked about nearly as much as it is now. So it's not a criticism of anybody. It's just a fact. And, you know, if he, he wasn't my manager, it would have been someone else and they would have been in the same position that he was in. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, I've not been treated very well here. And that is not a result of anything other than ignorance. And if we can kind of alleviate that ignorance, then if this were to happen to me again or if it was to happen to somebody else again, I think they would be looked after in a better way. I mean, for and, and an example of that being, and I didn't, again, I didn't realize this at the time, but, you know, I was, li- I was staying in digs in Rio with another colleague and for my own sake, they moved me to a nicer hotel, but I was on my own. And actually now thinking about it, that was the worst decision because, you know, all right, I had ready access to food and stuff. So I didn't have to leave the hotel. That was good, but I had nobody to talk to. I had no distraction. It was just me in the four walls of a hotel room all day, every day. Um, so it's little things like that, that just people, it wouldn't happen now if someone was going through a bit of a mental health crisis, they wouldn't do that. Um, and that that alone is a is a big deal. But, you know, I was not surprised at all that once I did that qualification, I had loads of people come talk to me about their mental health um, in all kinds of different ways. And, you know, essentially, you know, the course is basically, it's designed to allow you to point people to the resources that are at their disposal within the BBC. You know, you're not there to act as a counsellor because I don't have that qualification and, you know, I've got to be very careful about what you say to people. Um, And so it was, it's more a case of like listening to what they've got to say, talking to them about it, if they want to talk about it and saying, listen, you probably don't know this because it's, it's not that well known, but these are the resources that exist for you. You know, one of the, and this is such a, it sounds like a little thing, but it's not, you know, when I was at work going, you know, when I got back to work, but I was still having these panic attack bouts, I just found a spot behind the back of a studio where people rarely went and just sort of sat there and breathed and tried to, you know, tried to do my, I did like, I'd got into mindfulness and I did like a 20 minute mindfulness because I knew around the back of the studio, nobody really went. What I didn't realize is that within the BBC offices, there's, there is a designated quiet room where you can just go and sit in, in a, in a chair and, you know, be totally, nobody can see you and that kind of thing. It's like low lighting and all that kind of thing. If I'd known that I would have been going there all the time, but I didn't. So it it's, you know, I, I talk to people because people will ask about, and that's the other thing, you know, 
I kind of feel like because I'm a really positive, bubbly personality and because I do, you know, like it's not, I wouldn't really describe it as a high profile job, but it's a high, more high profile job than most people's jobs. Um, people are really surprised when I say that I've had these problems, but that's such an important thing to tell people is that, you know, mental illness is like, is like any other illness. You know, if someone broke their leg, you wouldn't say to them, I just didn't think you'd be the type to break your leg. Um, it's the same thing with mental illness. It is an illness. It doesn't discriminate. It can hit anybody at any time. And, you know, when I see people um, on social media be be horrible about those struggling with mental health, I think, well, I feel bad for you because if you really think this, you know, it's going to make it that much harder if you're ever in this position or if you have a loved one in this position. Because if you think it's weakness, then you know, you'll quickly find out that it, 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 it isn't. It's just something that can happen to anybody. And, you know, for whatever reason, bad luck, um, it happened to me. Um, and here we are. Well, I think that's so positive what you've been able to kind of do and implement. And I'm so glad that some of your colleagues have, have kind of talked to you and, and stuff. Um, the last question we always ask is, uh, you talked about walking and, and walking your dog and stuff. How do you look after your your mental health at the moment during during a period where well, I'm guessing that you know you are feeling better than you were? Um, yeah, how do you look after your mental health day to day? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm big on mindfulness, um, and I stopped doing it for a long time because I wasn't struggling. I mean, you know, cards on the table. It just happens that we're having this conversation at a point where I'm not actually at my at my best mentally, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm dealing with stuff that I've not probably dealt with for a good three or four years. But again, you know, I've got my coping mechanism, so I really enjoy a bit of mindfulness because. You know, as I mentioned, as someone with with generalized anxiety disorder, I have a natural tendency to catastrophize. And, you know, catastrophizing is obviously worrying about things that have already happened and, you know, how they could impact the future. Um, And, you know, so a little, you know, if I if I sometimes if I have a bad show, you know, that might make me think, am I a bad presenter? Whereas what it should make me feel is that was just a bad show, whatever. Um, but but my brain can go to the to the extreme of that. So because because that form of, of mental illness is all about fixating on something that's already happened and you can't change and thinking the worst thing that it could affect. The great thing about mindfulness is it's designed to bring you back to the moment. It's designed to try and bring you to the now. So it's all about, you know, um, breathing in sensations that you can feel in that moment and just kind of dragging yourself back to the present to stop worrying about the past and its impact on the future. So mindfulness, I really enjoy. Um, I also really enjoy um, exercise. Like I said, you know, um, I, uh, I mean, so that was one of the really difficult things during the pandemic or I mean, still during the pandemic, but during lockdown um, was, was, you know, the gym that I go to closing. So like I was really proactive on that front, you know, I started running more, uh, and then, cause I was running so much, I got quite a bad Achilles injury. So I was like, okay. So then I, then I got a, um, then I got an exercise bike, which, um, is now my big thing now is, um, is the bike. Cause it's like, you know, it doesn't impact your, your feet and stuff. So yeah, exercise, mindfulness, those are my two big things and work to be honest, which I have to be careful of. Cause you don't want an unhealthy balance, but you know, it's distraction is a good thing for me. So having something to focus on, um, makes a big difference. Um, 
and our dog is an idiot so i always need to focus on what he's doing so <laughs> that helps <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad you said mindfulness because that was something when i first started seeing my psychologist you know initially it was it was about pain um and the kind of with with chronic pain it's very much when you start feeling pain the mood drops but when your mood drops you start being in more pain mm. and he suggested uh mindfulness to me in our first session and i gave it a go and i just thought this is complete bullshit because i have no idea how this is meant to help me um but then kind of like you said the more you stick with it and i, I found a really good book um by a guy called danny penman which is which is called um, mindfulness for health but it kind of explained why it was why it could help and and it is something that that really helped me and then during covid i actually did uh, a qualification to become a mindfulness instructor and that kind of helped me deepen my understanding of it and i think it's important to say that you know it won't work for everyone you know for some people it is just not yeah you know, well i think one, one of the things them, but... about mindfulness is i tried to do meditation before because you know meditation is a thing but meditation to me just had a stigma around it which i struggled to get past and also like it's the thing of you know one of the first things you'd be told in medica in medication in meditation is empty your mind i was like well, i want i want beer if i could do that you know and it, it just it annoyed me and i was like i cannot empty my mind like it sounds like such a simple instruction, but the, the great thing about mindfulness, which is still a form of meditation, is that, you know, certainly in the course I did, so I used the Headspace app, which is obviously, you know, pretty famous by now, but it's the kind of thing of, you know, they very early, very early on said, you know, not only will this, isn't this necessarily for everyone, but, you know, it will work better on some days than others. And it was kind of that thing of like, we know you're struggling and we, we're not going to tell you to like empty your mind because we know you're not able to do that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And it's kind of like little things that that can get you to that point without kind of trying to make it such an emphasis. And, you know, yeah, so I was very switched off to the idea of meditation. And when I heard about mindfulness, I felt the same way because I was like, mm, this feels like it's just going to be another thing. But actually just listening to the guy talk, I was like, yeah, actually, I feel like I feel like you get it. And I'm and I, I'm willing to invest some time in it. I think that's key. They're, they're willing to invest time in it because it just nothing, nothing with mental illness works straight no. away. Um, but the two things my psychologist said to me that really made me think twice about mindfulness was the first was after I'd kind of done it a few times and tried it and I just wasn't getting on with it. And he said, instead of trying to empty your brain of thoughts, take your thoughts. And I think the phrase he used was put them on the workbench of your mind. So it was just trying to see them but not engage with them and then the second thing was um he started telling me about all of the the people or the sports people that did mindfulness not necessarily well i suppose it goes back to that mental fitness argument and he was like you know lebron james kobe bryant and then the more kind of the more i read around it the more the more kind of elite athletes and actually simone Biles said it the other day when she was yeah after she stopped, she said, you know, she went back, tried to do a mindfulness. And, um, and yeah, there was a really good book that I read called The Mindful Athlete by a guy called George Mumford. He was a really, he was a really cool guy and had, you know, he had his own life struggles. He 
he was a college basketballer. Then, classically in America, got um, got an injury and addicted to prescription painkillers, which kind of morphed onto other stuff. But he started doing mindfulness. He got into it, and he became. Um, he was the guy that helped the Chicago Bulls with the mindfulness. Mm. Um, so he worked with Michael Jordan and people like that. And he wrote a really interesting book called The Mindful Athlete. And that kind of changed my my perception of it from being bullshit to being actually, you know, this is quite interesting. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And again, it's like, that's literally what we referred to earlier about like, you know, who somebody is. And it's that idea of like, you know, you can see mindfulness and kind of switch off to it but then you know if you're told the kind of people who do it then it makes you think well if it's okay for them then it's definitely okay for me yeah um and yeah just to finish where can we you know where can we hear you what exciting projects have you got coming up oh uh yeah bbc radio five live um so i'm a i'm a uh, i present um sports shows for them um and i do every sunday so I present our Premier League show. So it's kind of me and normally um, Nader Manua, who used to play for Manchester City, um, with like a string of guests. And then we have like the live commentaries in between. I also do like a, a, a European football show on Thursday nights on Five Live. And, you know, I'm always, I'm just, a, I'm a bit of a dog's body as well. Like I, I just rock, rock up presenting shows all over the place when other people aren't available. So yeah, I'm always, I'm always on air. Uh, I'm never far away from the radio. Brilliant, Steve. That's been super fascinating. Thank you so much. No, pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick note to say, although the things I discuss with the guests we may find helpful, I'm not a trained medical professional. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or speak to an organisation like Samaritans at 116 123.